if you don't have specialized war crimes prosecutors, your case is quite likely to go nowhere or at least it has much, much less chances of success. Justice plays an important role. I consider this tribunal a false tribunal and indictments false indictments. Such abhorrent crimes must not go unpunished. Proceedings will be long and complex. All rise. Hi, welcome to Asymmetrical Haircuts. My name is Stephanie van den Berg and I'm here as ever with my lovely co-host Janet Anderson. Hi, Janet. Hi, Steph. We're doing today's episode with the support of JusticeInfo.net. You know how we spent some time talking about cases where war crimes victims get to take their former torturers or maybe prison guards to court here in Europe and put them on trial for crimes against humanity? You mean like the case in Koblenz, the Al-Khatib trial, which started in April? It's actually the first criminal trial involving state torture in Syria, and the crimes were committed in Syria. The accused are Syrians, as are the survivors, but the court is in Germany, so this is universal jurisdiction in practice. Yeah, but uh, while it's great to celebrate cases like that, um, actually, apparently, it's not that easy to get such a case to trial, particularly not for the victims. Uh, last month, three big NGOs, FIDH, EWCHR and Redress, all of which have massive victims focus, brought out a fat report that said that even though lots has changed, there's still a load of barriers preventing victims from effectively participating in these kinds of hearings. So we thought it would be good to get the report's author, Sarah Finnan, the FIDH EU Survivors Rights Project coordinator. Hi, Sarah. Hi, thanks for inviting me. And we put her together with practicing lawyer Patrick Croker, who's responsible for ECCHR's work on Syria. Hi, Patrick. Hi, Steph. Hi, Janet. And thought that we'd ask them about what's going right and what's going wrong. So start with Sarah. Is this a growing field? It feels like it to us, maybe because we just pay a lot of attention to it. But kind of how many cases are we talking about or how many potential cases of torture and crimes against humanity and genocide are we talking about? Thanks for the question. Yes, I think in some ways it is a growing field. Our report looks at five different EU member states that are the most or amongst the most active in investigating and prosecuting international crimes at the domestic level. We looked at Sweden, Germany, France, Belgium and the Netherlands. And amongst those five countries, between them, they have almost 500 ongoing investigations, over 150 in France alone. And of course, not all of them will go to trial, but this is still a really significant number. For a lot of these cases, do they involve mainly migrants and refugees, or um, is there also a growing number of cases with, say, returned foreign fighters? A lot of cases are being opened on the basis of information that's provided by immigration authorities. Um, but there are, so th those would involve cases um, of foreigners entering the territory of an EU member state. But there are some exceptions to this. So there's the so-called foreign terrorist fighters. We're seeing a willingness to prosecute them, not just for terrorism charges, but also for their involvement in international crimes. And then there are some investigations against companies and their executives for involvement in international crimes. So there's a current investigation against um, two executives of London Petroleum in Sweden for complicity in alleged crimes in South Sudan. That's just one example. 
A few years ago, there was also a case against a US-Belgian national who was allegedly involved in the trade of blood diamonds in Sierra Leone. That had to be abandoned, unfortunately, because the accused died while he was in pretrial detention. But I think these two examples of foreign terrorist fighters and um, companies and the, their executives send a really important signal that uh, EU member states in particular will hold their nationals accountable if they're complicit in international crimes. Now, Patrick, you've um, been looking at this area for quite some while and you've seen this growth of these specialised war crimes units all across European Union. Uh, my impression is there's been a huge investment in these areas and in the coordination between them, but are they delivering what they promise? I don't know if they're delivering completely what they promise, but um, there is a huge uh, development on that field, definitely. Um, I think pretty early on after the Rome Statute came into force and all these countries started adopting uh, their laws to, to the new requirements, uh, namely to be able to prosecute uh, the core crimes in their national legal systems. There was a report by Human Rights Watch that, uh, that, that was investigating just this question. How likely is an investigation to go forward if you have a specialized war crime? unit and and if you don't and and already there and also from our you know ECCHR's more than 12 years practical experience if you don't have specialized war crimes prosecutors your case is quite likely to go nowhere or at least it has much much less chances uh, of success and uh, so it's it's definitely um, even a prerequisite I would say for any kind of effective investigation of these crimes to have these units, although, of course, you know, uh, coming from the civil society, I can always demand for them to deliver more. But it's been it's been a huge development. When we look at the countries, so we're looking here mainly at countries that already have these specialized uh, war crimes units. So this is France, the Netherlands, Germany, Sweden. I'm missing one. Belgium. Belgium. Yes. <laughs> I know in the beginning, because I know a lot about the Dutch system, the Dutch were very kind of uh, took the fir first steps and were very in the lead. Now they seem to be kind of being bypassed by Germany and Sweden. Do you see a kind of pattern in who they prosecute and, and what kind of cases they prosecuted? Netherlands had some Rwanda cases, but they also had some Dutch people involved in war crimes abroad. Is there a keener will to prosecute when it's, for example, suspects of their own nationality? Or um, do you also see now that there is a growing push to prosecute where everybody is not of the same nationality, like within the Syrian trial? You're right, there have been a lot of cases that have involved the genocide in Rwanda, not just in the Netherlands, but in other countries as well. There have also been a number of trials involving the conflict in the former Yugoslavia, the communist regime in Afghanistan, the Red Terror Purges in Ethiopia, the Pinochet dictatorship and the conflict in the DRC. We are seeing a significant number of trials occurring in Germany, for example, um, with regard to Syria and Iraq. There are also a number of trials concerning Iraq and Syria in other EU countries. Sweden has conducted five, for example. I think it's an interesting development is these broad structural investigations concerning crimes committed by the Syrian regime. So these investigations are happening in Germany, but they're also happening in Sweden and France. And that has led to a lot of indictments and subsequent trials. You, Patrick, are more on the, on the front line. And do you see, can you say something about how this shift happened? Uh, or if it really was a shift from the Germans where they went from looking at 
uh, people from either Rwanda or past conflicts and, and German nationals to these more structural investigations? Is that a um, conscious choice by the German prosecutors? Yes, I think the structural investigations that Sarah mentioned and that really deserve a lot of attention because they are um, probably the most important tool when you want to explain the development that UJ cases have taken in the past years. Um, because they prepare, they lay the groundwork for any kind of investigation uh, against individual suspects. And Germany has uh, taken the lead, I would say, pretty early on when the first kind of cases started in Germany and it became clear that the investigations, when you start with them, once you know about a suspect, that it's just way too late for, for substantial war crimes investigations to take place. So there has been a really, really huge learning curve uh, ever since the Code of International Crimes came into force in, in Germany. Um, however, there are also two other aspects, I think, which deserve attention here. And one is a presence requirement that some countries have even prescribed in their universal jurisdiction laws. So they're only able to start substantial, at least, investigations when suspects are present or when one of their own nationals has been victimized. But also, if you look at the trial stage later on, normally, you know, also in Germany, it is required that the suspect is present, is sitting in the dock, so to say. And therefore, you might have structural investigations but they won't lead to person-specific investigations if you don't have suspects in the country. So this also reflects the number of people that are coming mainly to seek refuge in European countries. And, and the other aspect that you also really need to look at, I think, is that almost all of these suspects And today still is what Maximo Langer, you know, some years referred to as low-cost defendants. These are people that politically are not costly, so to say, for the respective governments. You know, they are from, as you said, they are from Rwanda, they are from a failing Yugoslavian government, they are from Syria, etc. And so we do see at least a big lack uh, of the, the prosecution, you know, when it comes to more powerful uh, representatives of more powerful states, you know, the ECCHR with partners Basically, since since 9-11, we have tried to, to put the uh, U.S. Uh, torture program into examination as well and have, uh, you know, in many instances failed with that. So, so this is also, you know, the double standards that are still being applied by these European governments is also one of the reasons why we have this selection of suspects and not another one. If I could just add to what Patrick said, what we're seeing is really a much more proactive approach by the specialised units. So rather than waiting to have a specific perpetrator in their jurisdiction, um, even those states that are not able to open a structural investigation because that's not provided for in their law, they are still willing to gather evidence of international crimes before they're able to open a formal investigation into a specific perpetrator. And I think it's also worth noting that we're seeing increased cooperation between the units in this sense, and both at the regional level, so within the EU, with the support of Eurojust and Europol, who are helping to share this information between jurisdictions, but also internationally with the establishment of the mechanisms on Syria and on Myanmar, which will support investigations and prosecutions being conducted at the domestic level. So these are very encouraging signs. Yeah, in practical terms, actually, in the Netherlands, there was somebody arrested, which came from the German structural investigation uh, into Syria. And I know that the Dutch system, I don't think, allows for these big structural investigations, but has a kind of 
placement or somebody has to be linked to it, but they are doing more general investigation. And even the war crimes prosecutor, Dutch war crimes prosecutor told me that they're really looking into the Yazidi cases and they're really hoping to do something with them. And they're already now uh, researching that, even though they don't have any specific victims or any specific accused uh, in mind now. But they are looking at looking more, I think, at the German model of a broader investigation so that they could, uh, when something comes up, do something. Sarah, you wanted to say something. I I was just going to add that this is a relatively recent development. We are starting to see these efforts at increased collaboration and cooperation bear fruit. Um, But I think we're going to see more and more of these connections between different jurisdictions. And it's not just with respect to accused. It's also with respect to victims. So as you mentioned, a specific uh, specialised unit might have a perpetrator in their sights, but they might not know who uh, the victims are. And we have already seen an example coming out of Germany, and perhaps Patrick can speak about it a little bit more, where a victim was identified with the assistance of NGOs who were able to track down the victim of the perpetrator that was already in the sights of the German war crimes unit. Yeah, and at the same time, you um, also see this cooperation getting ever closer, so to say. I don't think it's by chance that the two countries, Germany and France, uh, have uh, most of the investigations ongoing. It's also because they have a a joint investigative team, uh, a JIT, established um, on cases of Syria, which allows them really to, to share evidence in a way that is even faster than the already fast-track kind of um, mutual assistance in criminal legal matters with other EU member states. So it's not on a kind of case-to-case basis where you still have to file a request and ask for a specific for assistance in a specific case, which already within the EU genocide network is working much better. But they even have joint investigations ongoing and can use the evidence that is taken from these joint investigations in both legal systems. Um, so I do think that this is really a trend and, and a, re- a really positive one, I must say, because this is precisely where I think that the European Union can also really add value and, and, and really defend its core values, if you will, because ultimately, you know, the exercise of international criminal law is, is about the protection of, of fundamental values. Everything you're saying up until now um, tends to suggest, yes, it's all going well and it's all going in the right direction. But what about for victims themselves? I can still imagine that they feel very much outside of this system, that it's all very technical. Um, it's difficult for, for them to find information about where to, where, who to tell that something terrible has happened to them to access protection, access um, support, I mean, you know, financial support. What's it like being a victim in this uh, situation? Sarah? If I can perhaps begin by giving you a little bit of background on our report. So over two years, we conducted interviews with 140 investigators, prosecutors, victims, advocates and other experts, as well as a number of victims to see the extent to which victims can exercise their rights in cases involving international crimes. And what we found is that substantial progress has been made in recent years in the field of victims' rights. However, victims of serious international crimes continue to face significant legal and practical barriers that limit the exercise of their rights. 
Now, a lot of these practical barriers stem from the inherent difficulties in investigating and prosecuting these sorts of crimes at the domestic level. And of course, you're well aware of those. There are enormous obstacles to bringing these sorts of cases to trial. The crimes happened many years ago, often thousands of miles away. Access to evidence is limited. So it's not unusual for litigation in these cases to take decades and perhaps with no satisfactory outcome. But in terms of victims and survivors and witnesses, the importance of witness testimony to these cases, given the lack of access to other types of evidence, can weigh very heavily on victims who may feel that they have a responsibility to those who no longer have a voice. And these victims are often required to revisit very traumatic events, which can have a serious destabilising effect if they don't have access to appropriate psychological or psychosocial support. The fact that many of these victims also reside abroad and don't necessarily speak the language in which the trial is being conducted raises obvious challenges. And lastly, the national authorities often have insufficient expertise or resources to dedicate to victim engagement. So this means that they rely very heavily on NGOs like ECCHR, FIDH, Redress, Civitas Maxima to overcome these sorts of practical barriers. Patrick, you are one of those uh, NGOs or you, you work with victims directly who are seeking this kind of access to justice. What is the, the biggest bottleneck from your perspective? Well, I think it's really all along the process, as Sarah has said, it really starts with getting, you know, the first contact. How do you approach uh, any authority or a lawyer in a country that you don't know about a crime, you know, that has happened uh, far away all the way until uh, how do you communicate a judgment properly uh, to an affected community and to affected people. And I think uh, there also is a trend uh, to again uh, say something about a positive trend to acknowledge uh, the importance also of not just the evidence that these people provide, uh, survivors, victims, their families, uh, but also the importance of their well-being and of their acceptance. I mean, we are speaking about, uh, you know, one of the core aspects of the legitimacy also uh, of these cases that they do find acceptance uh, in the most affected communities. And this is more and more accepted also by the public authorities in general, because it doesn't only refer to the prosecution authority, it also includes the courts, the ministries, and so on and so forth. However, there is still a huge lack uh, of what it would actually take uh, to, to pass out enough information, to have enough programs also to counsel victims that want to engage in these processes. And there's still a huge reliance on, on NGOs to, to help them. And uh, although Although this is not, I would say, a private matter. I mean, this is a public task. These are people that are enabling international prosecutions of crimes, you know, that quote unquote do concern, uh, you know, humanity as a whole. And so, so there needs to be more, uh, you know, responsibility taken on, especially when it comes to the public communication. And here we really see that we are dealing with national legal systems, at least in Germany, but also in many other legal systems, it's still, you know, the presumption is we are in Germany, we speak German, we cannot communicate in any other language, etc. And for us as, as NGOs, it's impossible to, to have this broad communication uh, that, that a state would have. Um, so here I do see a lot of, of things to improve still. In a very practical way, because you are a lawyer who assists those victims, what kind of things do you have to do where you're like, this is something that the state should be doing? Why am I kind of shoestringing this together. 
Well, first of all, the way, at least now speaking about Germany, where I, you know, practice uh, by far the most, obviously, if somebody would just go anywhere, or let's put it the other way around, somebody is in an asylum interview and is saying something about an international crime that he or she witnessed or was even victimized by, um, that would go to the federal criminal police. The federal criminal police would summon that person with name and address, send a letter to invite that person and say, hey, why don't you come talk to us? And that would be it. The person would appear, the name and the address would already be in the case file, and the person would be asked questions by police personnel, not in uniforms, okay, but still, you know, in this whole setting. And, and then all of this would end up in the case file. And the accused would have access to that. And, it, you know, you cannot erase any of this information anymore afterwards. And, and basically, anonymity is, is almost the only way that we have to protect these people, you know. So before this contact is being made, they should be made aware what they are asked to, to testify about, that they do have the right to bring along, for example, under the EU Victims' Rights Directive, somebody to accompany them, that they do, at least in most countries, have the right to be accompanied by a lawyer, uh, that there are possibilities to ask for an anonymized witness testimony, and so on and so forth. The moment that they hear about this possibility first is when it's already way too late. And so we try, you know, to counsel these people beforehand, and with us, they can kind of speak and get all the information. What do I have to expect from this process? And if I don't feel comfortable with that, I go home and the ECCHR is not going to do anything with that information. But the public authorities, for them, that's not possible, at least not in Germany. And so we demand from them, for example, uh, that they pass on this information, as it says in the EU Victims' Rights Directive, at the first point of contact. And here it's, it's way too late. Have you been able then to identify some of the best practices in, in individual places, Sarah, that, that you think you know, this is what everybody should be doing? If I can just add to what Patrick was saying, one of the troubling things that we identified in our report is perhaps a narrow interpretation of what constitutes a victim. Often the specialised units, when they look at someone in front of them, if they're not a victim of the crime that they are investigating, they're not considered to be a victim for the purposes of the Victims Directive. That's incorrect. Any person who has been a victim of a crime has a, has a right to access to information, to be accompanied, like Patrick said, um, to be referred to support services and to be protected against retaliation and secondary victimisation. So what we'd like to see is the authorities take a broader or a more um, correct understanding of what constitutes a victim under the Victims' Rights Directive and ensure that all victims who satisfy the criteria are provided with these rights. In terms of some of the best practices that we've identified, we have seen some creative outreach strategies by some of the specialised units. So some have been trying to use existing channels to bring trials closer to affected communities, given that they don't necessarily have dedicated resources to devote to outreach. So some of the units like uh, the Dutch, for instance, have been issuing press releases that are specifically targeted at victims and affected communities. They issue easy to understand case summaries that are put on a dedicated website and they post updates on social media. One of the things that I noticed in the report is that you talk also about the difference between financial assistance and lawyer assistance that victims get. 
how does that work? I know that there in the Netherlands was some debate with a recent case where victims from the Hawija attack in Iraq tried to get compensation from the Dutch state. And there was some discussion of whether, you know, the Dutch state should pay for legal aid so that they can be sued by victims. I'm wondering how it's organized in other countries and, and what the kind of European directive for that is. So I think uh, first let's ask Patrick directly for how it works in Germany and then uh, go to Sarah for the more general picture. Yeah, I would say the legal aid system that we have for victims of these crimes in Germany is something uh, where um, something that we put on the positive note of uh, on the positive side of things, so to say, uh, in the report. In, in Germany, if you are a victim of an international crime, then you do have the right, if you want to file an application, to become uh, an accessory prosecutor, as it's called, or a, or a claimant in a criminal prosecution and a trial, you do have a lawyer whose fees are completely paid for by the state, and there is absolutely no risk, even you know, in case of an acquittal, there is no risk whatsoever uh, that you would have to pay any fees. Uh, and so that, I would say, is, is something really, really positive uh, to note. So the legal aid scheme um, here is quite satisfactory. However, If you speak about compensation, that normally, you know, victims of grave crimes have the right to, to get, you know, uh, if the offender cannot uh, can compensate them. Also here, we have a very limited interpretation of this. And it, in almost hardly any case, it applies to victims of international crimes because they are foreign nationals. Now, Sarah, how is that? So Germany is well organized. Uh, how, how are the other states doing? What we saw across the board is that victims do have a right to seek compensation directly from an offender during criminal proceedings, but there are real difficulties enforcing those awards. Either the accused doesn't have any assets that can be used to pay compensation, or it's very difficult to get access to those assets because they might be in a different country. Now, normally in an ordinary domestic case, most or all EU states are required to have a state-funded compensation system set up. That is a safety net in a way, so that if victims can't get compensation directly from the offender, they can apply to the state and get compensation from the state. What we've seen across the board is that victims of international crimes are generally excluded from accessing those state-funded compensation schemes, either on the basis of their nationality, their residence, or where the crime was committed. So victims of international crimes already have difficulties getting access to compensation or enforcing compensation awards against offenders, and then they don't have any safety net. They cannot apply for state-funded compensation. Uh, so that's that's a compensation aspect. What about the legal aid aspect and the having your lawyers paid for? Um. Yes, there were quite some differences across the five countries that we looked at. At the one end, there's Sweden, which is very proactive in ensuring that victims have access to a lawyer. So when one of the specialised units, either the prosecution or the police, when they identify a victim, they will apply for the court to appoint a lawyer to represent that victim, and then that lawyer will be paid for by the state. And generally, they receive sufficient funding to do their work. Then on the other hand, you have countries like uh, perhaps France or Belgium, where there is a legal aid system but the funds that are provided to lawyers are not sufficient to allow them to conduct the work that they need to do in these very complex cases. 
And then you have countries like the Netherlands where victims of international crimes technically under the law don't qualify for legal aid. There have been some workarounds, but that is an issue that the uh, public prosecution service and the police in the Netherlands as well as NGOs are pushing to have change. So pushing it forward, what do you think we're going to see as changes in the future, hopefully positive changes? What do you, what do you want to see happen? How, do you want there to be um, a harmonisation of practice between these different jurisdictions? Do you want to see more money go into these units? Do you, do you want to do yourselves out of a job and say, you know, we as NGOs shouldn't have to do this, it should be everybody else? What's your vision of how the future should look? Patrick, to start with. Yeah, I think resources is one of the key aspects. Uh, if you want to have investigations into these crimes, and I do think that they are absolutely necessary, because if you look at how many crimes are being committed and how much, you know, uh, we do have any form of accountability for them, uh, there's still a big, you know, accountability gap to close. So um, as, as laudable as these efforts have been in the past years, I think, you know, there's always among state authorities, you know, it's, it's a bit of a contest uh, for, for resources, but these are really, this is a really important point. And I think all of the um, units uh, have have also mentioned that uh, that we spoke to for for the report. And beyond that, I would like the this technique of structural investigations also really to become kind of a, a regularity when it comes to these kind of of crimes. Because uh, as has been mentioned before, if you don't prepare the grounds for individual cases then it's hard it's close to impossible and and so many times it needs this preparatory work before you even get to specific perpetrators if we wouldn't lay the groundwork now then we would never be able to get for example to the uh, top leadership of the Assad government that is most responsible for these crimes and so i would really like to see that uh, expand more and more but then also very importantly i would like to see more western and economic actors especially uh, become part of these investigations because in many many cases there are people, businesses, enterprises profiting from wars here. And we have seen that in very, very single incidents. Sarah has mentioned some of them. Uh, the Lafarge case in France is, is another one. Uh, just today, uh, I, I received the news that also there is a Danish company uh, being investigated now for having sold uh, fuel that was then later passed on to Syria. But there is a lot of profit that is being made with international crimes being committed elsewhere. And if we want to do a good job in investigating them, we need to look at ourselves and see who is not only profiting, but who is contributing to these crimes. And I would like to see some improvement there as well. Sarah? In terms of victims' rights, there is an EU directive that provides for minimum standards with respect to victims' rights. Um, and that is the directive that's at the, the heart of our report. But individual states are given a lot of latitude with respect to how they implement it. And we must, of course, remember that these crimes are being tried in established domestic systems. So there will be differences in approach. But having said that, they are all facing the same or very similar issues. And I think it is possible to draw on the best practices from other jurisdictions. And that is what we're hoping our report will encourage the specialised units to do. We hope that they will look at the approaches that are being developed in other jurisdictions and reflect on what they're doing and whether there is room for improvement. And just a final note, I think in terms of victims' rights, 
what's most important perhaps is not so much what's written in the law, but it's the attitude of the individual actors who are implementing that law. It's the attitude of the police, of the prosecution, of the judges, of the staff who work in the courthouse and who might assist a victim who walks in the front door and doesn't know where to go, what courtroom to go to, where to sit. All of those individual actors who are involved in these proceedings need to be conscious of the needs and the wishes of victims and take a very victim or survivor-centred approach to their work. Just before we go to our natural uh, closing of the asymmetrical haircuts questions, I wanted to ask Patrick, uh, when Sarah talks so much about the need for individual actors to understand victims, in the the Al-Khatib trial, which is kind of first and all the people testifying there are are Syrian nationals. What do you see practically of how that's going on a day-to-day basis of how they are involving victims? Do you see improvement uh, over time? Um, What's the situation for you with that case specifically? Well, I think improvement over time, I can only talk about the prosecutor's unit because we don't have so much uh, experience in the court system. We have we have had one big war crimes case before at a different uh, court than, than now. Uh, the units definitely have received quite a lot of training and you do see that in practice. Uh, they really manage to, to a certain extent, to provide for an atmosphere that is really inducive, you know, for, for people to, to tell the story and, and feel, feel okay with it. And uh, they can also, you know, see the signs of when it is necessary to, to take a break or to, to offer more support, etc. So definitely, I would say uh, that there has been a positive improvement there. Of course, we have seen a number of victims already testify also before the court. And here, I would say in Koblenz, it has also gone relatively well. Of course, it's it's very difficult always to make generalizations because these are so individual stories and so, you know, individual people that come uh, with, with different attitudes, hopes, fears, etc. But in general, uh, if, if I can say that, it has gone well because... We are lucky that the judges, the prosecutors and also the defense lawyers uh, take a careful or a sensitive approach when questioning victims. What it lacks, however, is also training on the side of the judges. So I'm saying it's it's going well because we are lucky because we have judges that are sensitive, but there is no, at least not that I know of, uh, no comprehensive training system for that. And I know that other countries, for example, the Netherlands, are doing much more in that respect. Uh, and so it's gone well so far, but it's it's a bit by chance, so to say, that it has. So at the end of each of our podcasts, we ask a couple of personal questions to our participants just to put you on the spot. So the first one is, are there any mistakes that you've made that you've learnt from that you would like to share particularly to do with this subject that you think would be interesting for our listeners to know about we've got two very puzzled participants on the other end at this time so who's gonna go first I can go first if you like I worked as a prosecutor in Australia before moving to the Netherlands to work in the international justice field And it's not so much a mistake, but it's been a really steep learning curve to come from a jurisdiction, a common law jurisdiction that doesn't give victims very many procedural rights to see how things are done so differently. And I will take those uh, those lessons and those experiences home if I or when I move home to Australia and go back to practice. Patrick, anything that you want to share that you thought, oh, I know how this works and then not at all? Well, a bit 
differently, I would say. I mean, what, what I really learned in the years that I've been doing this work is how important it is for, um, for everybody to look after themselves as well. Because uh, sometimes people that work in this field, you know, are very, they are driven, you know, by a strong force, which is why it's so great to work in this field, because it makes also for a specific kind of character, etc. But uh, it's, it's difficult sometimes to, to step back and also to demand that of your colleagues, etc. And say, look, you know, we have to stop here now. We cannot do more at this point in time. We need to look for ourselves because it is a very, uh, a very difficult task. Of course, in comparison to the people that we work with, we are always better off. But I, I found out that, you know, taking self-care is also something that does, you know, enhance what I can do because then I will be able to do this work better. And this is difficult when you get into this field because you see so many difficulties, you see so much misery, etc. When, when you talk about the crimes and so on. Uh, but to really try and to tell that to others that work with you, take a break, you know, take, take a holiday, do something for yourself so that you are, that you are doing well yourself. And, and this, is, this is something that I had to learn over the years. And our other main question that we ask at the end is, is there anything that you've been reading recently, watching or listening to that you'd like to recommend to our community? What about you, Patrick, first? Yeah, I'm, I'm so busy in keeping up with the trial and reading all these motions uh, that uh, embarrassingly uh, there, there hasn't been uh, much in the, at least in the past year, because I've been so overwhelmed by, by all that stuff. So there goes the self-care, Patrick. Then you, you have to take your own advice. Uh, you have to take yourself up on your own advice. Well, but that's the reason also why, you know, if I read, then sometimes I, I take a different kind of, of book, you know, into my hands that has nothing to do with international justice. Ah, but we love to hear about those as well. Well, right now it's actually a book that uh, by Francesca Malandri, uh, which in German the title would read uh, Everyone But Me. Um, and it says in the review, uh, which is something that I really found uh, striking or telling, you know, or, or, or being a good characterization of the book, that's kind of, you know, a view into the Italian soul, so to say, because it's really amazingly putting together everything from, uh, you know, Italy under fascist rule, colonial crimes in Ethiopia. So here we do have uh, crimes of a large scale, but nevertheless also going basically to, to modern Italian society and, uh, and, and the question of immigration or migration to Italy and Europe, etc. I find it really, really fascinating read. And um, yeah, so that's something that I, that I like to do in order to, to switch off a little bit. And Sarah, maybe you're very on brand with doing lots of uh, legal reading, or maybe you do something off the mark to do something completely different. Tell us what you're reading, watching, listening to. Well, in terms of self-care and taking time out, I have a lovely Australian shepherd, a dog, who's in the other room and I think has been very good while we've been recording this. I haven't heard her back at all, so that's great. Um, but in terms of what I've been listening to and what might be interesting for your listeners, there's another podcast that I'd really recommend. It's called The Trauma-Informed Lawyer. It's a podcast prepared by a Canadian lawyer who is advocating for a more trauma-informed approach to the practice of law. And it's a really, really excellent podcast. It's relatively recent. I think she's just finished her first series. So I'd very much encourage you and your listeners to have a look at it. Okay, we'll need, we'll need pictures of the shepherd, of course, for our, for our website <laughs> to help all, the, all our, our listeners de-stress as well. 
thank you both of you so much for taking time out of your busy lives to uh, to chat to us about this and give us a, a bit of an overview of what's uh, happening in this universal jurisdiction area. And uh, we'll speak to you again soon, we hope. Thank you. Yeah, thank, thank you very, you very much. much. It's been a pleasure. This podcast was created and presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. It is published in partnership with justiceinfo.net. You can find show notes and additional blogs on asymmetricalhaircuts.com. It is recorded in the Hague Humanity Hub, home to a community of innovators in the field of peace, justice, development and humanitarian action. Music is by audionautics.com and the show is available on every major podcast service, so please subscribe, give us a rating and spread the word.